a black father looks back on his life to share with his son his experiences of being black in America. He tells him of love, of culture, of education, of history, and of the dangers and struggles he will face as a world looks upon and treats him as disposable. The father, Tanahasi Coates, the book Between the World and Me. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's, Let's get lit. Get lit. And this is Kari. And you're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama. Hey, Kari. So we're going to continue with that idea of us putting a theme at the end of the program after the deep dive. Okay. Okay. I like that. So in, uh, so we'll jump right into our context and author. Kari, what can you share with us about the author of this book? Okay. So the author is ta Coates, a name. Uh, everyone listening is probably likely familiar with. He was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1975, a graduate of Howard University, a journalist, writer. Coates' first name, Tanahasi, is derived from an ancient Egyptian language uh, named for Nubia. Um, his father was a Vietnam vet, former Black Panther, librarian, and his mother was a teacher. Coates' father founded and ran Black Classic Press, a publishing company specializing in African-American titles. Uh, when he behaved poorly growing up, his mother would make him write essays, which reminded me of something similar that um, Trevor Noah relates in his memoir. And somehow from this punishment, a love of literature was born. Um, so Coates lived in Paris for a residency. And in 2009, he lived in Harlem with his wife, Kenyatta Matthews, and son, um, Samari. Coates. He's a feminist. He's an atheist. But is he anti-American, as some would say? Coates would answer this way. He'd say, if you believe that America is somehow higher than all other countries, that it's touched by God, then yes, I'm condemning it. But if you believe, mm. as I believe, that it's a country established by humans with all the beautiful things and all the flaws that come from being a human being, then no. And I know he'd say that because I'm paraphrasing a quote from a 2022 interview with Trevor Noah for The Daily Show. And that's ta Coates. Thanks for sharing, Kari. Now let's hear a brief synopsis without spoilers before our deep dive. Mm, in an intimate letter to his only son, a father explains his identity and fears within the galaxy of America, its race invention, and the mythology it's produced. Alexis, who do you think would enjoy reading Between the World and Me? So this kind of sounded to me like a diary entry. Um, so I think anybody that um, likes memoirs, <laughs> if you like a memoir, you'd enjoy this, especially those related to um, being black in America. Yeah, I thought about Isabel Wil Wilkerson, too, and also Stamped, of course. I think um, those books are, yeah, Stamped and um goes well with with this memoir. If, if you enjoyed learning about the history of not just uh, Black Americans, but the idea, the ideology of race, um, that that was very interesting and eye-opening stamped was. So I thought this book was a great follow-up for that. 
Yeah. Um, Kari, tell us why you chose this book. It's been on our list for a while, as we said last week, and it's a very short read, a very intimate read. So I thought, why not? Uh, This seemed like the perfect week uh, to slip in something (laughs) of this nature. We I don't even think we're doing another nonfiction this month. And so it was the perfect opportunity to pick this book. Okay. well, why don't we take a quick break before we jump into the deep dive of Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Is that okay? Perfect. Let's do it. And we're back. Kari, are you ready to take that deep dive into Between the World and Me? Yes. Yes, I am. Let's do it. Here we go. All right. So Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates begins with a a word from uh, Richard Wright in his poem, Between the World and Me. And that quote is, And one morning while in the woods, I stumbled suddenly upon the thing, stumbled upon it in a grassy clearing guarded by scaly oaks and elms. And the sooty details of the scene rose thrusting themselves between the world and me. Part one, my body. Son, now, <laughs> we must realize that ta ain't even talking to us. He is talking to his son, primarily, fully, completely, okay? And we just have the privilege of being in on this conversation, right, Alexis? Correct, correct. So he begins with um, telling his son about a television host who asked Tanahasi what it meant to lose his body. Although she did not mention it specifically, it was his body that she was referring to. The question was, why did Tanahasi believe that the progress of Americans who believed themselves white was built on looting and violence? And the answer, he says, is American history, standing in defiance of their God, democracy, um, uh, contract was built about a government of the people for the people and by the people. And of course, those words are Lincoln's from the Battle of Gettysburg. These people, though, did not mean your mother, he tells your son or your grandmother or me. People was a political term. Americans believe in race as a reality of the natural world. And racism is the innocent daughter of mother nature. I love Ta-Nehisi's mm. writing here because he mm-hmm. is taking very large ideas and um, condensing them into succinct statements. Um, so what he's saying here is many people believe race as it exists in America is an inherent reality, not a made up construct. They believe all over the world people see race as we do here and that the race system that was invented here is just as natural as a hurricane or an earthquake. But so, it's not. Uh, that means that race. I know. <laughs> yeah. So that means that uh, race is the child of racism, and it's just something that happens. You know, racism is the innocent daughter of Mother Nature, but actually, race is the child of racism, not the father. Hue and hair is a fact, but the idea that these characteristics signify deeper attributions, which are indelible, is a new idea. Um, in the context of history. 
And it's for the hopelessly deceived, he says. Perhaps one day Americans will toss aside this fictional hierarchy and rise to their hopes, creating a nobler basis for their myths. But he can't call it. He like, maybe everybody will be better and more woke and freer. But I don't know, son. (laughs) (laughs) So what are you thinking? This is just the beginning of the book. And what are you thinking so far? I'm like, wait, what is he talking about? <laughs> That's where I am. But then I had to think back and and I recalled he's not talking to me. So I don't need to know right away. I can take some time to think about it. <laughs> yeah, mind your business, but also don't because we're going to keep reading. So, exactly. The- <laughs> The idea of being white, Tanahasi goes on to say, was not achieved through ice cream socials and wine tasting, shade, but the pillaging of life, labor, and land by taking away the bodies and rights of others. It didn't start on the golf course. It started on the plantation. Well, actually, we re-stamped even a little before that. Very interesting stuff. Um, and it's historical. It's like, oh, yeah, of course we were never taught this. Um, and this is actually an education intrinsic to our identity as Americans that we have to learn outside of school, mm-hmm. but whatever. Um, so <laughs> America, ta again goes on, believes itself to be the most noble nation to ever exist. Live, live with the fruits of our history and ignore the great evil done. But this is not our luxury as black Americans, he tells his son. So you're going to see a lot of people just conveniently ignoring or um, being purposely obtuse to the facts of history. But you can't do that. So (laughs) get it out your head. You need to know the truth. And as your daddy, I'm about to tell you. Um, Now, you know, son, that the police department is endowed with the right to destroy your body. Never mind if it is the result of an unfortunate overreaction or misunderstanding. The destroyers will uh, rarely be held responsible. And this is an old truth for black people. So let's move on. Ta-Nehisi is sad for his son, he says, who does not have the privilege to believe the dream that so many are sedated by. He fears most whenever his son leaves him, but he's not unique in the sphere. And then he goes on to explain something um, I thought in a very profound way. He talks about the fear he's seen in other black people since his adolescence. The puffy coats and the effects of boys in his neighborhood growing up were evidence of their fear. They clothed themselves in these possessions as a way to guard themselves against what they feared, whether that be poverty, whether that be um the loss of agency. Uh, this was the way they, the, even the way they stood showed that they were afraid. Their customs of war, rituals of street fights. And these street fights definitely do have rules, or at least yeah. they did at a time. Um, that was all evidence of a fear. Their music, which made them feel like masters of their lives, showed their fear. The way mothers and fathers discipline their children in the Black community shows a fear. But there was another world where this fear did not even exist. And ta knew that because of television. <laughs> America <laughs> was a galaxy and there was a vast space between the other world and him and his world. Because people on TV was living in Highland Park and having fun times in detention. And <laughs> he was like, mm, this is a very interesting world. I do not know. Mayberry what? Let's move on and talk about school. But let me say that I really appreciate 
the way he said that, the way he talked about that fear that he saw in the neighborhood amongst the black men and boys in his neighborhood. I really like the way he talked about that, discussed that. I think he discussed it rather poetically. Absolutely. I agree. Five hundred percent. And if you're watching us on YouTube, there may be a, like a slight delay when Alexis talks, which is experiencing some Wi-Fi issues because she decided again to abscond the country. <laughs> um, but anyway, I ain't going to tell all her business. So let's move oh, on. <laughs> the laws of the street, ta says, were straightforward and reactionary. However, the laws of the schools were aimed at something distant and vague. Evidence of this uh, was growing up. You were told you need to be somebody. You need to go get an education so you can be somebody. Who are you trying to be? And what is the greater <laughs> implication of that? <laughs> the school was hiding something. It was not a place for higher learning. School did not reveal truth. It concealed truths. Mm-hmm. Uh, why was a number two pencil the difference between life or death? If a boy was in the street and he died, people would say he should have been in school. Because was school the safe place to be? I came to see the streets, ta says, and schools as arms of the same beast. Fear mm. and violence were the weaponry of both. One enjoyed the protection of the state, the schools, and the other did not. Fall in the streets and a crew would take your body. Fail in school and you be sent back to those same streets where a crew would take your body. Society will say he should have stayed in school. And now I want to... um. We're going to give a few quotes from the book. Um, And this is the first one. Here we go. Very few will claim they are in they are in favor of black Americans being left to the streets. But a large number of people will do all they can to preserve the dream, quote unquote. No one directly proclaimed that schools were designed to um, to sanctify failure and destruction. But a great number of educators spoke of personal responsibility in a country authored and sustained by a criminal irresponsibility. The point of this language of intention and personal responsibility is broad exoneration. Mistakes were made. Bodies were broken. People were enslaved. We meant well. Right, 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 right. So what are all of these words saying, Alexis? What is he telling his son in this portion of the book? To to me, it sounded like he was telling him that um, Pete, how does he how does he phrase it? People who who call themselves white is how you know, how did he say that in a book? You remember there's an expression Mm -hmm. he used because white people implies that someone is born white and he called (laughs) it what people who call themselves white. Is that how he said it in the book? People who call themselves white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he says people who call themselves white. So these people who call themselves white um, did terrible things and that they've now been excused. And you, we have to deal with that. That's how I heard that. And part of that exoneration comes from the fact that education is available to all. Now, is that education thorough? Is it really giving the truth? Of no. basic realities. No, <laughs> it's perpetuating um, an ideology for the most part. But if you don't learn this ideology, you will be blamed if you are killed in the street because you should have been in school learning the untruths. You see, learning the so, untruths. There's that because because mm-hmm. it's something that's con- good. T- continuously fed at every level. Every level. Yeah. These truths. For sure. These untruths. 
excuse me, these untruths are told at every level of education. And we're not talking about two plus two equaling four. No. uh, Which is debatable. (laughs) But no, no, no. We're talking about some men having the divine right (laughs) to do terrible, evil things and then being praised, uh, even though they have shown themselves to be terrible and evil. Big skews has monuments built for them. Oh, yeah. It's a great thing. Malcolm and Howard. So Coates saw in Malcolm X the first truly honest man. He's not talking about the men in his life. He's talking about the men he's learned about. Okay, because he has great respect for uh, the men and women who raised him and showed him love growing up. Uh, But Malcolm X said our hair was as good as anyone else's. Um, And it's too beautiful to be stripped and processed. Our noses are too beautiful to be hacked and altered. Our skin is beautiful. We are beautiful. To Coates, um, Malcolm loved us. And so he loved Malcolm. And also to Coates, Howard University was his Mecca. Uh, His father worked there. He met his wife there, Coates did. And it was in Chocolate City, proximity to Black power. The alumni were names that combined to create the Mecca. Thurgood Marshall, Zora Neale Hurston, Toni Morrison. These are great names, great black people in which uh, Coates goes as far as to compare the university to a religious center. Uh, The black world was expanding before him, he says, and it was beyond what was translated by the white who came up with the one drop rule. The black diaspora was the Western world itself. Who was the Tolstoy of the Zulus? We would never know because the Zulus were not important in the context of the history he learned in school. And so all their great minds were washed away in those history books to praise the other wider world. Although we love Tolstoy over here. So keep it cute. Tallahassee. Okay. So that's exactly what I said. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute, though. We really like that story. Okay, cool. <laughs> He's like, Kari going to have a problem with this. No, I, I get it. Totally get it. So Tanahasi needed books. He, he loved books and he needed to learn. He needed to learn truth and inhale pages. And Howard University complied. Um, and if some of our listeners don't know the history of Howard University, what it is, it's a historically black college with its own special place in the history of America. Uh, the function it served, the minds it has birthed. Um, and that's what Coates is drawn to, the, what's taught there, which is factual history that we don't get in grade school. Mm-hmm. And grade I school, guess you can say that for a lot school, of university high classes. School. <laughs> but it's an uncomfortable history that's taught there uh, that you don't get in a lot of places. Uh, yeah. So, mm hmm. Tanahasi learned truths that carried the black body beyond color and texture. But being black and beautiful was not something you could safely talk about openly. Any sign of even minute pride would offend someone else who would then see to it that you were disabused of that pride. And we see that here. <laughs> if um, if you talk about your proud Italian heritage, um, very few people, I would argue, will think you are attacking their heritage. Because your pride in your culture has nothing to do with them. But if you talk about being uh, proud of your Black American history, you may offend people who think you should not be proud of it because that attacks their culture. It's a very weird, uh, very, very unique situation. Very, 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 very very weird. 
extra berries added on top. <laughs> yeah. So um, black leaders sold black people to the enslavers. Someone will say if you uh, are content even with your history and culture, uh, don't blame the colonizers. Blame the black rulers and people in power in Africa who sold bodies to the colonizers. Aren't those the same black kings that supposedly birthed a civilization? And what about the black bodies in prison today? Isn't it their fault they're there? Mm -hmm. So there is a conversation always being had about if you should have even the smallest bit or drop of pride in who you are and where you come from, if you Mm. are a certain person. Coates saw Howard as a place for freedom that covered identity and proclivities. Eventually, he met his wife, the mother of his son. Another quote, he says, I am not a cynic. I love you and I love the world and I love it more with every new inch I discover. But you are a black boy and you must be responsible for your body in a way that other boys cannot know. Indeed, you must be responsible for the worst actions of other black bodies, which somehow will always be assigned to you. And you must Mm. be responsible for the bodies of the powerful. The policeman who cracks you with a nightstick will quickly find his excuse in your furtive movements. And this is not reducible to just you. The women around you must be responsible for their bodies in a way that you will never know. You have to make your peace with the chaos, but you cannot lie. You cannot forget how much they took from us and how they transfigured our very bodies into sugar, tobacco, cotton and gold. So you must know, end quote. So you must know the truth, but don't let that truth drive you crazy. (laughs) You must still succeed. You must still be yourself. You must still be happy. Otherwise, how will you be alive? And then um, Coates goes on to describe his relationship with Prince Jones. And it was um, he was vicariously friends with Prince Jones, it sounds like, because uh, Jones loved a girl with long dreads who Coates enjoyed spending time with. Um, But Coates had love for this um, this boy, Prince Jones. He would smile whenever he saw him. Um, He does remember Jones being. Just the if you hear Prince Jones, you expect somebody handsome, tall, brown, the son (laughs) of a doctor, which Prince Jones was all those things. (laughs) But he was also kind. Uh, He had made it out, quote unquote. He was smart. And soon after Howard University, after he graduated, he was shot dead by a police officer who would later claim that Jones tried to run him over with a Jeep. But in Coates' mind and heart, it wasn't the officer that killed Jones as much as it was the system that facilitated the murder. Okay, so um, Coates was reading a news report and saw that a boy had been shot dead in Maryland by a police officer. This was not an odd occurrence. It was not an anomaly. So he didn't even look at the name. Later on, he did go ahead and look at that name. And what he saw, he could not believe. It was Prince Jones, the same boy he'd went to Howard University with. He called uh, people he knew in school at that time. And they were shocked. Um, Weeks went on and it became clear that the officer involved was a known liar who utilized false evidence. So prosecutors were forced to drop the case in all cases, actually, in which that officer was involved. So you would think this officer was like fired, right? No, no, no. (laughs) The officer was demoted, restored, then put out on the street to continue his work. And Coates says, 
Through additional reports, a narrative began to take shape. The officer had been dressed like an undercover drug dealer. He'd been sent out to track a man whose build was five foot four and 250 pounds. We know from the coroner that Prince's body was six foot three and 211. We know that the other man was apprehended later, the true man that everyone was looking for. The charges against him were dropped. None of this mattered. We know that his superior sent this officer to follow Prince from Maryland through Washington, D.C. and into Virginia, where the officer shot Prince several times. We know that the officer confronted Prince with his gun drawn and no badge. We know that the officer claims he shot because Prince tried to run him over with his Jeep. We know that the authorities charged with investigating the shooting did very little to investigate the officer and did everything in their power to investigate Prince Jones. This investigation produced no information which would explain why Prince Jones would suddenly shift his ambitions from college to cop killing. This officer, given maximum power, bore minimum responsibility. He was charged with nothing. He was punished by no one and he returned to work. So um, if a man approaches you with a gun drawn, <laughs> no badge, and you think he's a drug dealer, <laughs> you might try to hit him with your Jeep. And I think yeah. that's light, like, right? Because you're trying Absolutely. to get home to your family and whatnot. Absolutely. He, he got shot. Mm -hmm. And in the eyes of the justice system, no one's at fault. Um, nothing could save those beautiful bodies at, at Coates's Mecca from the gun of an officer. And that officer was black. Mm -hmm. So the education that he should have stayed in school. Mm -hmm. All those excuses are thrown out the window in a situation, right? Then it's right. just bad place, wrong time, wrong place, wrong time. Right, right, right. You know, people have little idioms to neatly put away such tragedies. Two months before September 11th, Coates moved to New York uh, with his wife and son. Um, <laughs> Coates was a bit of a struggle bus at this time. <laughs> he would tell everyone that he wanted to write. <laughs> his wife had secured a job and he felt like a stowaway. <laughs> um, and then soon the tragedy of September 11th happened and Coates felt detached from it. Because he felt like he'd been living through a tragedy. His family had been living through a tragedy and no one cared. And then this performative unity that occurred after the tragedy, um, he felt was just so disingenuous. Um, he didn't have things, he told his son, but he had people and he had love at that time and throughout his life. And he wants his son to know that. Um, now, another quote. Some days I would take the train to Manhattan and there was so much money everywhere. My money flowing out of bistros and cafes. No, pause. You ever been really broke, <laughs> especially um, after college? And you like, how do people got money for anything? <laughs> Folks be at the cafe every day. <laughs> With for the regular six cup uh, coffee, six dollar cup of coffee. Yeah, like that's all I got to eat with today. Y'all blowing it on lattes. How does this happen? He says, as he kept traveling, though, he saw how it happened. He said, um, money in the limestones and brownstones, money out on West Broadway where white people spilled out of wine bars with sloshing glasses and without police. I would see these people at the club, drunken, laughing, challenging break dan dancers to battles. They would be destroyed <laughs> and humiliated in these battles, but afterward, they would give dap, laugh, order more beers. They were utterly fearless. I didn't understand it until I looked out on the street. 
that was where I saw white parents pushing double wide strollers down gentrifying Harlem boulevards and t-shirts and jogging shorts, or I saw them lost in conversation with each other, mother and father, while their sons commanded entire sidewalks with their tricycles. The galaxy, (laughs) he realized, belonged to them. (laughs) Then there's an episode at the theater. Do you remember this, Alexis? He just saw um, a show in the Upper West Side. Is this where he um, says something to the woman? Yeah. So his son's five years old and a woman pushes the boy and says, move, come on, push, push the five-year-old. That's so and what weird. Did That's do? just what weird. What Tana Coats do? That's just weird <laughs> behavior. Okay. He's, he called her out on that garbage and some man. Yeah, some, and the woman was shocked. Yeah. Shocked that, that you could get away with that, that you cannot get away with that. Mm-hmm. Now, not that the devil needs advocating, but to play the advocate, I have many a time wanted to tell a child, move out of my way and push them to a little bit. All the time. But you know why I don't do it? (laughs) You know why I don't do it? But you don't do it. Because I am afraid of getting punched in the face (laughs) by a righteous parent. Because I would be in the wrong. Exactly. I wouldn't even be able to say nothing as I picked my face up off the ground. But this woman who may not have said this to another child, may not have physically touched and pushed another five-year-old, felt okay and comfortable after the theater. So folks is like dressed up and having a nice night with their family. She felt okay pushing this little black boy. In this time and space. Now he don't tell us what he said. This time and space. Because she wouldn't have done it if they were somewhere else. Yeah, so Tanahasi, he turns around, he says something to the woman that he does not disclose to us or his son. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's funny to me. And (laughs) a man watching tells him, I'll have you arrested. Okay. And what goes through Tanahasi's mind? This man really could have me arrested and taken away from my family. Yeah. I don't like yeah, that. I don't like that at Mecca. all. He forgot all of that. I don't like I that. Yeah, I don't yeah. like that. How can that man say that to you? And what is it based on? Even though Tanahasi didn't, didn't and one thing Ta-Nehisi, um, tell us what he said, the, he, did, he didn't mm-hmm. do anything to the woman. He said something to the woman is what he told us. Yeah, he didn't touch her. So how you having him arrested? How Mm -hmm. and under what? And so that is offensive. um, Sorry, I got to kick my cat. She eating all my cords. Oh, wait, is that what I heard? Is she um, eating cords? Is she eating cords? I just (laughs) had to throw that in there. Ah, is that what I heard? Okay. Alexis, before you try to uh, frame our producer... Are you gonna have her arrested? Oh man! I'm going. Alexis have wasn't her you arrested? In white face. <laughs> <laughs> Alexis always trying to have somebody arrested. Um, but this is a very sombering scene because this man, um, having a visceral reaction to his baby being assaulted, is threatened with being arrested, and it's a valid threat. <laughs> and so he has to dial down the protection of his son so as to not risk being taken away from his family. Mm. This is really uh, deep, dark, and a situation that many fathers um, in our families probably know really mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, Coates' feelings and the outcome in the situation, really, it, it startled him. Um, 
this whole situation startled him. Um, and one thing he mentions is that the man didn't have anything to say when the woman actually pushed the five-year-old boy. But when Tanahasi yeah, said dang. something to the woman, that's when the man said, I could have you arrested. So what does that show? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, ta says, because they believe themselves to be white, they would rather subscribe to the myth of Trayvon Martin's slight teenager, hands full of candy and soft drinks transforming into a murderous juggernaut. And they would rather see Prince Jones followed by a bad cop through three jurisdictions and shot down for acting like a human. And they would rather reach out in all their sanity and push my four-year-old son as though he were merely an obstacle in the path of their too important day. Uh, so here we go. Your mother, ta says, turned 30 and visited Paris. Now, this is ta talking. I have no interest. I had no interest in travel. In fact, a friend of mine said travel is as useless as buying an um, expensive pink suit. <laughs> so what's the point but then the mother came back <laughs> she talked about the street the freedom the people the beautiful doors and this helped Tanahasi to open his eyes to the world that existed outside of the American galaxy and the tie he shares with black people all over the world he got a passport he was afraid and excited and alive He returned to Paris with his entire family to show his son a different world with people living different lives and to remind his son that he comes from somewhere, just like everyone in the world. Alexis, you you kind of been doing this. How has travel, if it has, how has it uh, uh, shaped your identity of your new self in this new chapter of you, your old self in a new chapter of life? Well, you can you. Well, I look at the world, um, it's, it gets smaller to me. Um, it gets smaller because I, sure. I've made so many connections with people and I see the, it's smaller and still big at the same time. So I don't know how to describe it, but it, it opens my worldview. Mm-hmm. I am, I try to be more respectful of others and what they think, feel and believe um, and allow them that space without. Um, and I don't feel like I ever did this before, but even more so, I, I do my best to allow people their space to be who they are because everybody's not American. <laughs> right. I love the contrasting terms that you're using. Um, to explain something so clearly, the world is smaller and it's helped you expand your view, broaden your views. Um, I love that because that's really how it works. As the world stops being this vast, scary place full of scary people, you start to see people as people with their own lives, their own ideas. Um, and you stop being afraid if you were afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think you were ever afraid, but I see that <laughs> in what Tanahasi is saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and he saw, too, that this uh, the way that race Americans, um, the race invention of America covered him in every aspect of his life all day, every day. Not everyone lived with that. So what did that mean for them? How were their views shaped? Who were they? Of course, uh, different types of racism exist all over the world. Uh, But the very specific one that he lived in, um, how how was life without that? Um, He also talks about being at the airport and he bumped into a black man who was like, my bad. And the black man was like, you straight. And in that moment, that little piece of life was like a language and understanding between them. And it helped ta to realize from where he comes and 
although they made us a race, we made ourselves into a people. Um, and some very uh, beautiful statements here. So then I just want to end with a final quote from the book. ta says, I do not believe that we can stop them, Samari, because they must ultimately stop themselves. And still, mm. I urge you to struggle. Struggle mm. for the memory of your ancestors. Struggle for wisdom. Struggle for the warmth of the Mecca. Struggle for your grandmother and your grandfather for your name. But do not struggle for the dreamers. Hope for them. Pray for them if you are moved. Uh, but do not pin your struggle on their conversion. The dreamers will have to learn to struggle themselves to understand that the field for their dream, the stage where they have painted themselves white, is the deathbed of us all. And that is Between the World and Me by Tana Hasi Coates. Would you like to take a break? Let's. All right, let's do it. You promised us a theme of the week at the end of our deep dive into Between the World and Me. And listeners, if you don't recall, or perhaps you do, each week we choose a theme to discuss inspired by the book. Alexis, please, what is the theme this week that we're getting into? Okay, so the theme I've chosen for this week is young black teens doing things. (laughs) This article that I came across is from... 20, I want to say 18 or 19, but I only um, include them. It's only like four, four um, young people, four black young people that mm-hmm. I can find a current associated website with. So this is what I found. There is a Georgia based uh, teen, him and his, I believe it's his sister. And his name is Charlie and her name is Hannah Lucas. And they launched a mobile app called Not OK. And it's a um, it makes it easy for youth in crisis to ask for help. Charlie was 13 at the time and he was inspired to create this app for his inspiration came from his older sister, Hannah, who suffers from a condition that uh, makes her pass out. Um, it's like her autoimmune mm-hmm. system is attacking her body and it causes her fatigue and she passes out. So whenever she's not feeling well in school, she opens up the app and she can just tap that she's not OK, which will automatically send um, a text message to whomever she said she identifies that says, hey, I'm not OK. Please call me, text me or come find me along with a link um, to her GPS location. Oh, that's so I love that. Yeah. And so there is a website mm-hmm. out there associated with their um, their mobile app. The second um, teen is okay. um, George Hofstetter, and he's an app developer who uses technology um, to address systemic ills like racism and violence. As a senior in high school at the time, mm. um, he He developed his love for um, tech and then he created an app called Connected Dots, which is a platform to help black students and predominantly white private schools navigate racism on their campuses. And then he launched his own tech company called George Hofstetter Technologies, Inc. When he was just 16, he's also working on other apps 
One is called um, Cop Stop, which is designed to protect people from police brutality and educate young people about best practices for staying safe while interacting with police. And this app is supposed to include a film, um, an option that turns on camera. So you're automatically recording your interaction with the law enforcement. Mm. The third child, the third teen that I came across was Mosiah Bridges. Now, I heard of him. I actually was looking for his name, but I couldn't find it. Um, I couldn't think of it. So when I came across, it was pretty cool. Anyway, at the age of nine, he started making bow ties and then he launched his own company. It's called Moe's Bows and it's a handcrafted bow tie. Oh, I do know Moe's Bows. Yes. And it's sewn from yeah. scratch that he started at age of 12. So he's he's still in business. Um, he had a deal. I want to say this. I can't even remember what year this article was from, but he had a deal back in um I want to say 2018, 19 with the NBA where he created a line of handmade neckties that featured the NBA logo, the logos of NBA teams. Um, wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? He's still mm-hmm. in business. His uh, website is also active. And then finally, we have young Corey Neves, who was just six years old at the time when he told his mom he wanted to start a business so he could save for a car because he was tired of taking the bus. So he started by selling lemonade and then he added cookies to expand the product line. And today we have Mr. Corey's cookies and him and his mom make these cookies. And he's been able to partner with major brands such as Williams Nova, Hope. Williams Sonoma, Williams Sonoma, Whole Foods, Bloomingdale's, and Pottery Pottery Barn, and he also has an active website. So there are some five young black boys that are doing things um, in the world today, and that is our theme of the week. I love that. Thank you so much, Alexis. You're and maybe welcome. you can send me those links and I'll put them in the show notes so we can all support those businesses if we so choose. Okay. Well, well now that we've covered the deep dive and the theme of the week, may I have your final verdict? What have you thought about Between the World and Me by ta Coates? Is this a book you'd recommend? What's your final verdict? Yes, it is a book I recommend. I'll say it right off the top because like I said in the middle there, I felt his words were like poetry. It makes it easier to digest when it sounds like poetry, I think. And he said a lot of things that um, that made sense that kind of touched me and and um, moved me to think about the men in my life. And so I would definitely recommend the book, particularly to those men in my life. Um, and I would recommended overall as well, but I did enjoy the book. I, I like how he talked about um, his experience with traveling out of the country and how he described how people, um, how the young black men in his community um, were in fear and how that fear was expressed. I like the way yes. he talked about um, school and education, this process mm-hmm. where we're being taught about things, about people who did very bad things, but yet that was okay. It's it's being excused and we should continue on knowing that. Uh, so I really appreciated his approach to this story. And so I would definitely recommend it. What about you, Kari? What's your final verdict? And would you recommend this book? 
Yeah, I thought it was such a unique book, uh, a letter from a father to a son. I don't know another book like this that I've ever read anyway. Um, so I thought that um, that point of view was just so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the way he's very vulnerable with his son mm-hmm. um, and just going over it in this deep dive. It sounds like a political book, like he's trying to make his son view something about himself and about his country. But um, if that's the way the the listener feels, then perhaps I haven't described it uh, correctly because there's so many uh, layers in this book. And the overall theme is the love that he has for his son and the way he's trying to prepare him for the realities of the world he lives in, which is what any good father would do. Um, so the way he speaks is very frank, but he lets his son know these are this is what I have come to know based on my life experiences yeah. and what I've learned um, both in and out of school. That's interesting. So in that way, even if you don't agree with everything that ta believes, um, which I definitely do not, I love the beauty in his words. And I love the way he succinctly details um, the vileness of racism and the whole mythology built around it and how um, it will be the deathbed of everyone if it's allowed to uh, be, uh, if it continues, which, you know. Um, I like the way he says people who call themselves white uh, because uh, um, it's not because the effects of the racial system aren't real. It's because the idea of race is not a natural one. It's not something that is organic. (laughs) Um, And a lot of people just don't know that. I don't think I knew that before uh, educating myself. Um, And so I like that he's giving that education to his son early and letting him know um, that you don't have to allow others to shape your identity, but you do have to know how to move in this world so that you can keep your body and keep Mm. your um, agency as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I'd recommend it. I thought it was really beautiful, very intimate. He's very honest about himself to his son. Um, when talking about his emotions, his fears, his desires, um, the things he went through in life before he met his son's mother, his wife, um, and how he feels about his family now, how intimacy and just, um, you know, hugging his son and putting his son to bed, that those things don't come naturally to him. Mm-hmm. Although he's always had love in his life. Those are skills that he learned from his son's mother, from mm-hmm. his wife. Um, so Beautiful things like that, I think. And also the the book is very economically put together. It's not a long letter, I, I would say at all. Uh, this is a book you could read in a day, day and a half. It's under 150 pages, I think. So, yes, yeah, I, I definitely recommend it. I think it goes well in a curriculum that talks about black history and black Americans in this country. So after you read Isabel Wilkerson and after you read um, Stamped, after you read Ibram, you go ahead and read this too, please. Add that to the <laughs> curriculum. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you for your coverage and retelling of that story, Kari. What are we reading next week? We are reading The President's Daughter by Bill Clinton and James Patterson. 
Part one. Yes. It's going to be a two-part series. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I like a two-parter. Thank you for listening to Lit Society. We look forward to meeting <laughs> up with you next week, Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria, that's me, and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review that's for me. our show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Leave a comment on Apple and Spotify about why you absolutely love us because we love you too. If you enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about us and visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes this month's book list and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, readers, read read something.